The following episode contains actual recordings of telephone conversations between an undercover informant recruited for Operation Trade Bomb and his FBI handler. My name's Ron Kuby. I'm a criminal defense and civil rights lawyer here in New York. You know, I was working for Bill Kunstler at the time in what, 1990, uh, his office on Gay Street. Bill had been in the forefront of representing despised minorities for decades and decades and decades. Uh, Bill had represented many people accused of armed violence, revolutionary violence, um, you know, and, and frequently won those cases. I represent the damned of society, along with Ronald Kuby, my partner, real pariahs, people that could be totally hated by most of the population of this country. We had both learned about uh, the killing um, of Rabbi America Hanna. I, I mean, look, as a, as a general rule, I, I don't like assassinations carried out in the United States of America, you know, for political speech. I have not condoned violence. Violence is a terrible thing. But, for example, if Hitler had been assassinated by his generals, we all would have been cheering like mad. Uh, so there is an area in political life where assassination plays a role. It has always throughout history. But it wasn't terribly long after that that we got a call from someone who was representing no Sarah's interests, but, but they wanted to know if we wanted to represent him. And Kunstler was like, yeah. Interestingly enough, Bill was a Jew. Of course, I, I am one as well. I'm a Jew, too. And you might say to yourself, self, you might say, I thought these guys didn't like Jews. That's kind of a, a, a radical oversimplification of the jihadis' relationship with, with Jewish people. But part of the relationship with, with Jewish people, among some of them, is their belief that we control the world. So, look, the judge is a Jew. The prosecutor is a Jew. We better get our own Jews. I'm Mark Smerling, and you're listening to Operation Trade Bomb, an Apple original podcast produced by Truth Media in partnership with Brillstein Entertainment Partners. He said he wanted 50,000 rounds of AK-47 rounds. I said, how much? And I remember my father coming and telling me that we were going to Calverton shooting range on Long Island. Who did they run into is Abu Halima and Mohammed Salameh. And I asked him, I said, when did you become such a good Muslim? And he said, when I came to America and saw everything that was wrong with it. Militant rabbi Meyer Kahani was gunned down as he made a speech at a Manhattan hotel. My name is Zach Ibrahim. I've been sharing the story of my life, being raised by my father, Al Sayed Nasser. 36-year-old El Sayed Nasser charged with the murder of militant rabbi Meyer Kahana. I remember all of us packing into our 
wood paneled station wagon and, and driving from Jersey City uh, to Rikers and how a fog had basically blocked the prison you couldn't really see it you had to um, go through security and across a long bridge to get to the island my mother wore a scarf she wore it, uh, a long uh, jilbab that, that you know covered her whole body my mother would refuse to allow men to see her hair or to you know run their fingers through her hair but we managed to get through security and we were walked down this long hallway lined with cells and i just remember we were stopped at one of the cell doors and the guard opened the door and there was my father sitting in an orange jumpsuit at this plastic table with plastic chairs and he stood up and he came over and he gave us hugs we all sat down and I remember this scar that he had from about the ear of his neck down across the front of his chest where they had cut him open to try to remove the bullet. And I just uh, remember staring at it a lot while they talked. That was the first time that he and my mother had to have an actual conversation about the assassination. And... There were a lot of people that thought he did it. There were a lot of people that thought he didn't do it. But my mother asked him and he, he said he didn't. And she said, I just needed to hear it from your voice. So from that point on, he maintained his innocence and I believed him. And he gave us hugs on, on the way out and, and that became our new, uh, our new way of life. You know, you're trying to develop a sense of who the inner circle around Osaire was, and then you go out and try to interview those people. This is FBI agent John Anisev from New York City's Joint Terrorism Task Force. You might remember him from the last episode. After the NYPD arrested El Sayed Nosser for the murder of Rabbi Mayor Kahani, Anisev and his partner, Louis Napoli, started their own investigation to find out if there was more going on than just a simple homicide. After we dumped his uh, telephone toll records, you get a nice uh, look-see at who his closest associates are. There was one guy uh, that he kept calling almost every day, three, four times a day, and, uh, but on the toll records, it was Weber. So with uh, Nocer's tolls, we get this M. Weber. So me and John, we checking. We went to the apartment house that this Weber guy lived at, it was on 5th Avenue and 71st Street in Brooklyn. And Super comes. He says, can I, because it was dark in there. We couldn't see the, and we didn't have no flashlights. And he says, can I help you? I says, yeah, I'm looking for Emma Weber. He goes, nah, that's not Weber. That's the, yeah, that's the wife, he says. She's German, you know. Uh, the guy who, the, the, the guy who's there is a, some kind of terrorist. His name is Mahmoud Abu Halima. Uh, he lives up there. Anisev and Napoli remembered seeing Mahmoud Abolima. He was the red-headed Egyptian caught in an FBI surveillance photo, holding an AK-47 at a Calverton, Long Island shooting range. I says, Abolima lives here? Sure, he lives up on the second floor. He has a lot of guys come over and they stay late at night. They're, they're all, you know, talking and stuff. They're all cab drivers. So I said, do me a favor. I says, when you get, when, next time you see these kids, can you give me some plates? Sure, no problem. 
super. About a week later, he calls me and he says, oh, I found something. And I was in his closet doing some work for a cable and I found a, a bunch of blasting caps, you know. And uh, he gave me one of the blasting caps and I put the blasting cap in my pocket. And then I brought it to the office and my, uh, my supervisor was a bomb technician and goes nuts. He goes, you're crazy. He goes, that's an electrical blasting cap. <clears throat> that could have blew a big hole in your leg. So, huh. I wrote up an application to do a surreptitious warrant to go in there when he wasn't there uh, to see if we can find them. But we went in there, uh, the caps were gone, you know. Uh, he got suspicious and, uh, and moved them. But now I know Mahmoud's pretty, you know, tight with, with Nocer. All the people that were at the firearms range, Olima, Salome, Nocer. We didn't really have any sources now. We need real-time, up-to-date intelligence on this, on this terrorist cell. So we stopped interviewing Abu Halima. It got to the point where we would just have conversations about not even what I was looking for, but just talk about life, you know? So I learned more about his mindset, just having conversations. He came from, uh, from Egypt. He had a bunch of brothers and sisters. I knew that he was poor. And it's very frustrating. And I understand why they blame their government. And I understand why they go towards radical Islam. And I, I understand why they want out. When I would go to Croatia, and especially being at my father's village, which was much poorer than my mother's, it's almost the same. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be with the movers and the shakers that are going to change the world. But he would say, John, you should convert to Islam. It's the true path. And I'll say, I'll do that when you take responsibility as a U.S. citizen to protect your own country also. And then we'll meet in the middle somewhere. But no, 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 I must stay with my, with my, with my cause. And I said, oh, I must stay with mine, you know. But then, you know, after a while, it got old. You know, we just go through the motions. But that's when I knew I, I was never going to flip. I keep doing the organized crime terminology. I was never going to flip a made guy in this cell. Louis and I uh, decided that we were going to have to do a, a penetration or a dangle. It's where you have somebody and you put them out there to be recruited. That was our, our next goal. Anisev and Napoli needed someone to go undercover in what they'd come to believe was a budding terrorist cell. They heard about a night manager of a seedy Times Square hotel who had helped the FBI with another investigation. He was an Egyptian by the name of Ahmad Salem. Hi, Ahmed. How you doing? Hi, John. How you doing? You came here because you were doing that uh, other stuff. Yeah. Why you expressed an interest in doing it. Ahmad looks like a WWF wrestler from the 70s. Like, you know, big, big shoulders, really imposing guy. We all met with him, and uh, he was a major in the uh, Egyptian army, and he wanted the glory. He wanted to be a hero. I disagree about what these people doing. But I want to protect my country from people uh, who is trying to manipulate the Islam. We asked him if he would like to help. It was under the stipulation that he would be an intelligence asset, which means that he doesn't testify. 
wanted to feed us the intel, and we would have to figure out a way to, to handle it. Uh, we wouldn't use your information to make an arrest or a search warrant or something like that, because that would make you eligible to, for testimony. We'll try to go and get the guy another way. Right. And he didn't want his sister and his nieces and nephews to be in jeopardy if he had to testify. So he had a lot of good reasons why he didn't want to testify. And we promised him that. He was kind of intrigued with the FBI and he kind of liked the excitement and all that stuff. He goes, okay, I will do it. We never knew that he was taping us. Are you well, taping? What? Are you taping this? Well, anyhow. Ahmad is a live wire in a lot of ways. He's very headstrong, and he's a little hard to control. Ahmad used to go to his spy shop or whatever the hell, he used to get all these gadgets and stuff. He wanted to safeguard himself by taping us. Ahmad was afraid that when we locked these people up, we were going to say, Ahmad, Ahmad who? If you listen to some of the tapes, you'll see how, how hard it is to, to handle him. I'm not vain, I'm not cocky. But I know what I'm doing. I trust myself. But he wasn't a, a wheeler dealer in the worst way. You know, he was just himself. So I have no uh, hesitant. I am not hesitated. I have no hesitation to go ahead and uh, try to block any kind of attack from these people. We begin with a case that continues to ignite passions among Jews and Arabs. It's the case of the Egyptian immigrant accused of killing militant rabbi Mayor Kahana. November 4th, 1991, the first day in the murder trial of El Said Nosser. Attorney Ron Kuby stands with his partner William Kunstler at the defense table. I remember this striking image of a courtroom filled with people. On one side, on the defense side, there were an entire Islamic community was represented there, every seat taken. On the right side, an entire Jewish community was there, every seat taken. And in the middle, there was a thin line of Christian court officers separating the two. It it kind of looked like a, a, a mini conference of Abrahamic religions. Bill Kunstler was an extremely good lawyer, and Bill's first sort of view of the defense was kind of a a Palestinian rage defense, you know, that Kahana was just so utterly evil. When I took the uh, assassination of Meyer Kahani, uh, I thought initially that El Said Nosser had killed him as a political assassination and I was prepared to mount some sort of an insanity defense uh, along with my co-counsel. And when Nocer could deal with counsel, uh, Nocer insisted that he was in fact not guilty. Uh, He did not do the shootings. That there was a lot of evidence that he hadn't done it at all. So the whole thing changed. Instead of becoming a political case, it became a reasonable doubt case. There you go. We will proceed with a didn't do it defense. The defense argument was that Nocer was not guilty and that Kahana, in fact, had been murdered by a rival JDL faction. 
One of the witnesses testified that when Kahana was being put in an ambulance, one of his followers twisted his neck. Bill, of course, made a huge thing out of that. There they are, finishing the job. There clearly were power struggles within the JDL at that time. And like all great defense lawyers, Bill Kunstler took the evidence of that and managed to tell a fairly compelling story based on that evidence. The only justice for Nasir is Jewish justice, which is death. He's in innocent 100%. And Kahana Chai, Kahana does live. So now in front of the courthouse, there's a barricade set up for all the Muslim supporters of El Sayed Nasser on one side. And on the other side of the barricades was the radical uh, Jewish groups. And we tell Hamad, listen, okay, you go there. We want you to, to keep a kind of a low profile. Just This is the guy we would like you to eventually meet. Here's his photo. This is the guy who was most close to Nocer, uh, Ibrahim El-Gabroni. Don't go running up to him like you're you know, an informant on your first day. Just, you know, see who he is. So, you know, he's up there chanting freedom for Nocer. And people are starting to take notice of him. They've never seen him before. Who is this guy? He looks pretty squared away. He looks like a, he has a military bearing. So, believe it or not, Gabroni approaches him. And he says, uh, who are you and what are you doing here? So he says, I'm not. I used to be in the Egyptian army. I'm a champion in Taekwondo. He tells him, he says, I'd like to make amends for the sins that I committed. He goes, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, I spent my, my youth working for the kafir or illegitimate government of Egypt as a soldier, and I made a big mistake, and now I want to make amends with, with, with God. So, you know, Gabroni says, uh, like, well, what did you do in the military? He goes, I was an explosives expert and a weapons expert. I, you know, we wanted him to go a little bit more slower than that. He was as dumb as a rock regarding explosives. I mean, he, a, fire, a firecracker was complicated for him. But this automatically lit Gabroni up. So now Imad, uh, like that, just got in. You know, it's like almost too good to be true. You know, and it was in a lot of ways. The verdicts came after sometimes contentious deliberations. Kunstler was actually just getting ready to leave. He had already left the courthouse. And he was getting ready to leave on a trip when he got the call that the verdict had come. And he went racing back down to court um, and was there for the verdict. Well, the defense team claims someone from within the Jewish Defense League may have killed the rabbi. On the fourth day of deliberations, the jury found El Saeed Nozer not guilty of killing the rabbi. The snare smiled broadly tonight when the verdict came down. The night Nocer was acquitted was a huge night. And now there's the famous picture of Bill Kunstler being born out of court on the, the shoulders of Nocer supporters. I think it's a marvelous thing. I think the jury came to a reasoned conclusion. 
This verdict comes as a big surprise to many observers of this trial. There wasn't one Jew on that jury. What happened tonight is a message that you can assassinate Jewish leaders and get away with it. The jury did find Nosir guilty of assault and possession of weapon charges. My father was sentenced to seven to 22 years in prison. For me personally, the idea that we would someday be a family again was huge. And it was just a, a real source of hope for me. After a time, he, he was sent to Attica in upstate New York. They had these little houses inside of the prison where you could spend three days and two nights actually living in one of these little houses. And my mother would bring food, she could cook meals, and you could rent movies, and there was a playground. You know, this was all separated from the main facility in that it was surrounded by these large fences and barbed wire and stuff, but, you know, we could play catch and play a little baseball, which I loved. My father could push me on the swing and things like that. You know, just very kind of normal activities. Um, and then, uh, you know, we'd all pile back into the car and, and drive back home. And that was the closest we ever got to pretending to be a real family. Even though El Said Nocer would be imprisoned for the foreseeable future, John Anisev and Louis Napoli continued their investigation. Their informant was moving quickly, getting deeper and deeper inside the cell. By day, Ahmad Salem would meet with the men that surrounded Nocer. And almost every night, he would check in with his handler. Hi, John. Hi. I'm calling to check up on if anything new is happening. Supposedly today we go to Attica okay. to visit Said Nusser. So Ahmad used to go visit Nusser first at Rikers and then later on to Attica. And then he comes back with like an information dump, you know. When I was visiting Said Nusser, he was asking for the bombs and things like that. And Nusser says, well, he says, I did my part for Jihad. Now it's your turn. We need to make 12 pipe bombs to send a message. He says, I want you guys to kill the judge that handled the case. We're going to put one under Judge Lessinger's car. And he also wanted to have them put bombs in, in synagogues around the city. We're going to put one under some of the loudmouths from the JDL. And Al D'Amato, senator, U.S. senator, is also being very vocal. We're going to do him. Said Nusser, he kept pushing for bombs with me, the propane tank or the K80. Yeah, uh, wrapped, uh, M80 wrapped around a propane tank. Right. Ahmad, from then on, we were, you know, he was going to be the bomb maker of that cell. Now we have a murder. We have Nusser wanting destruction of synagogues. So now we see that now we have a bunch of people that are here to cause havoc. These people were going from training to go to Afghanistan to doing violence here. It was really getting scary. 
we hope to check on the record in jail if uh, Ibrahim Al-Gabroni visited Sayyid Nusirin the same day with Muhammad Salama. Did you check on that? Yeah. <coughs> I think According Ali According to this, Muhammad Salame was there that day too. These are all Nusir's inner circle. Muhammad Salame, Mahmoud Abulima, Gabroni. I thought that due diligence would be to confront all these people who talked about the 12 pipe bombs with, with Nosir and let them know that we knew. So uh, we bring them in and we're basically telling them that we know you're up to no good. We know about, you know, you were looking for, for fuses. We know that you were looking for, for explosives. We know that you were uh, practicing firearms. We were all over you. They said, no, that's not true. It was funny because these people, they're charging up hills against Russian machine guns in Afghanistan. And a polite interview by me, it maybe is not as scary as doing that. You know what I mean? And they left. Imad comes back from Attica and he says, well, I got a tape recording of what Nosir wanted done. <laughs> I said, you got what? And so I said to my sister, Imad, I said, you give me that tape. There's no way I can keep you off the stand. You're going to have to testify. He said, nope, you ain't getting the tape. Would you be available to come to the office on Wednesday? And okay. uh, my boss said, well, I don't quite trust this young agent and this detective. I'm going to evaluate the source myself. Bring him in for a polygraph. Oh, uh, I mean, not this Wednesday, the, the, coming, the, the, the next one. No problem. Okay, because they wanted to do that uh, polygraph thing. No problem. He didn't pass the polygraph. He came back as uh, deceptive. It wasn't an outright failure, but deceptive. So that was almost like, oh, you see, he's lying. Make him wear a wire. And uh, he was suspicious in me, and he put me on a polygraph exam, and he didn't believe me. I was being very honest. If I'm one of the suspects, investigate me from A to Z. No, you're not. Well, you I know, they ask questions like, have you been deceitful to the FBI? You can't ask that question on a polygraph. So if you ask me in a polygraph, did you ever lie to the FBI? I, I don't think I could pass that question. Nobody has not lied to the FBI who works there. And Ahmad, yes, I knew he's been deceitful. He used to tell me war stories about fighting the Israelis that were you know, almost on the impossible. But I know that the, the stuff he's telling me about these people in the cell are spot on. So when it got to the point where it was going into dangerous criminal activity, my boss said, either you wear a wire or you're fired. He wanted either black or white testimony or get the hell out of here. So of course I gotta cover myself. I have two children to take care of. He's your only source, and you're giving your only source the ultimatum of a dangerous thing. So forget it. Forget what? Forget the whole damn shit. No. I swear to God. Come on. I swear to God, John. I, I, I love you so much. I respect you so much. But I have a lot, a lot of real... Uh, 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 I don't know what can I say or what I can describe it. I mean, Disillusionment. Disillusionment with the, with the way things run. But I have to run within the rules. Then on uh, June 8th, we're doing a surveillance on a different case. It was me, Louis, we're in the Bronx, and I had a 
blazing headache all day. And just before we're, we're all standing in a circle, and all of a sudden they said, I looked up and I fell down and I started, you know, shaking, going into convulsions. And what happened was I had a arterial venous malformation. It burst. It was like a, basically a big hemorrhage, brain hemorrhage. So I was out for uh, 90 days. During those 90 days that I was out is when my boss fired him. So Mott is uh, out of play. So they fired him in uh, July or August of 92. So he was technically the bomb maker of that cell, right? You know who takes his place? A guy named Ramsey Yosef shows up and takes Ahmad's place, who says, 12 pipe bombs? No, we're going to make a real bomb. Ramsey Yusuf arrived in New York City just one month after Ahmad Salem was fired by the FBI. Ramsey passed through immigration at JFK. He said he had just one dollar in his pocket and didn't know a soul. That he met a taxi driver who took mercy on him and delivered him to the New Jersey mosque of Dr. Omar Abdel Rahman, the blind sheikh. Whether or not Ramsey ended up at that mosque by chance is an open question. But that's where he met up with Mohammed Salome and Mahmoud Abu Alima. In six months, these men would change the world. Next time on Operation Trade Bomb. As I looked up, there was a yellow van about 60 feet away from me. It, it interested me right away because the yellow van was parked illegally. I was on the 35th floor of the Trade Center and I felt this heave. In one moment I was here and then a nanosecond later, I was 60 feet away on my back watching a fireball go over me. What do I tell 18 million people in the state of New York about how they go on living their lives after they see what I just saw? What do I tell them? Operation Trade Bomb is an Apple original podcast produced by Truth Media in partnership with Brillstein Entertainment Partners. Zach Goldbaum is our senior producer. This episode of Operation Trade Bomb was produced by Kenny Kusiak, Alexa Burke, Michael May, Meher Ahmad, and Alessandro Santoro. Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling. John Liebman is our executive producer. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Bridget Busa is our associate producer. Sound design is by Kenny Kusiak with help from Alexa Burke and Alessandro Santoro. George Draping Hicks did the mix. Music by Kenny Kusiak. Our title track is Momentum by Kenny Kusiak. Production legal by Ryan Nord and Matthew Papa at the Nord Group. Legal review by Linda Steinman, Abigail Everdell, and Alison Cherie at Davis Wright Tremaine. Fact-checking by Dania Suleiman. The production would like to thank Nuha Musla, Amr Latif, Ruhan Ahmed, Latisha Naidu, Ahmed Fateha, Hiba Afifi, Juan Bernardo Custodio, and Evan Pishan. Please listen and follow on Apple Podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to write a review. Thank you.